This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, November 2nd, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. What has government done to our food? From promoting food waste to mandating chemical additives to fighting people who are themselves fighting hunger, government intervention at all levels is making food production less sustainable. That from Balin Linekin, author of the new book, Biting the Hands That Feed Us. He argues that food safety should be based on outcomes and not rigidly mandated processes. How do governments control not just the food that we buy, but uh, you know our understanding of what we're actually buying? Uh, I mean, governments at all level get to define not just uh, sort of you know what we can buy and where, but also even the definition of foods. Uh, there's a, sort of a, a movement uh, in government that's existed for several decades now that uh, defines foods in particular ways that uh, sort of flies in the face of uh, dictionary definitions of those uh, same foods. Give me an example of that. Uh, I actually worked on a case uh, in which the state of Florida defined skim milk as uh, the mandated rule says that it must contain added vitamin A. And there was a uh, sustainable small creamery with, I think, three employees in the panhandle. And they were creating uh, purely natural um, skim milk. And the state said, after a few years, oh, you don't add vitamin A. And they said, well, no, we don't add anything. And the state said, well, that's a problem. Um, And so the standard of identity that the state had said they had to add vitamin A. The absolutely amazing thing is, first, the state said that they could call the Skim milk, instead of skim milk, they could call it, quote, non-grade A milk product, natural milk vitamins removed, end quote, uh, which just rolls off the tongue. And, of course, uh, and they could not make any reference to skim milk. Eventually, the state uh, softened up a bit and decided that they could uh, refer to their all-natural skim milk as, quote, imitation skim milk. That is fascinating. That doesn't, it's, it's, playing with language in a way that, that, as you say, does fly in the face of what common understanding of what actual words mean. Skim milk to most people just means we've removed the fat. Yes. Uh, that is the dictionary definition. That's, in fact, what Adam Smith was talking about in The Wealth of Nations when he talked about skimmed milk. Um, and yet the FDA and many state governments have, uh, in sort of Orwellian fashion, uh, redefined that and, and many other foods. The federal government has uh, more recently than Adam Smith has gotten its uh, hands on this word organic. And in order for things to be USDA certified organic, you have to do a lot of things uh, to your your food products. So how has that word come to be come to mean something different to large producers of things like milk and other products where, it might mean might have meant something different to other people. The the history of organic uh, labeling is very interesting. So in the, the early 1970s, uh, California certified organic farmers and Oregon Tilth, which were the first two certifying bodies, work with states to come up with definitions, and people could voluntarily submit their products uh, to be certified or not based on what methods they were using. There was some fraud, although it wasn't really amongst the producers. It was it was amongst others who were trying to claim that their foods were organic when they didn't meet the definitions. So Congress in the 1990s moved to uh, sort of nationalize the USDA uh, to uh, organic uh, definition to give that to the uh, USDA to regulate. Uh, It took another 10 years or so before the USDA actually came out with rules. 
they were immediately controversial um, because they didn't really resemble what in the early 1970s had been that sort of spirit of organic. The Washington Post had a great expose a few years ago where they referred to the annual rights of controversy uh, over the USDA's National Organic Standards Board, which is what sets the the definitions. Uh, and so they gave an example. There was uh, were some low-level USDA employees who said, you know, hey, this artificial uh, flavor enhancer or uh, or what, whatever it was, uh, is not organic, doesn't meet our general definitions. And they were overruled by a more senior level official. And, you know, I wasn't in the dark, smoky room when that decision was made, but I can suspect that the, you know, big, uh, uh, you know, dairy food uh, or milk product uh, person and company came in and said, hey, listen, we need this to be organic, and, you know, we need you to, to give us a pass on this. I mean, the word organic itself is a little fuzzy. It, it involves a lot of different processes for different kinds of products. And so there isn't one definition of it, but it, it seems that USDA, at least for each individual product, is trying to create a definition that says this is organic and this is not, which I, I think people would like to be able to look at a product and say, oh, it's organic. That means a good thing, and therefore I want to buy that product. But, uh, of course, they're not aware of the machinations that go on at USDA to actually come up with whatever that definition might be. Right. And, I mean, the I think lots of people, when uh, organic labeling first came out, had a lot of faith. You know, it was the people who, uh, who were most intimately involved in organic food who set out to define it. And as it's become sort of a federal definition. Uh, there's a great example of another uh, controversy. There, there's the word uh, or the term, quote, access to pasture in the regulations. And it said that if a, you know, an animal was confined, uh, you know, so let's say they were a, a dairy cow, they had to have, quote, access to pasture in order for the, the dairy to, you know, their milk or cheese or whatever, to be considered organic. And so Access to pasture was something that was fought over for years because, you know, if you had this tiny little door and the cow never actually went outside, it could still be organic. That, of course, flies in the face of the very origins of the, you know, and intent of the meaning. Um, but that's the, the sort of battle that plays out on an annual basis with the, the definition of organic. One of the other uh, areas where the government gets involved in regulating food is so-called sell-by dates or spoilage dates and things like that. How does that actually contribute to waste? It does uh, contribute enormously to waste. There's a movement right now to sort of nationalize what the meaning of those terms is. Right now, you can say that something, uh, you know, is sell-by X date or use-by or um, best before. And these terms they have meaning only you know, that the maker attributes. There, there's no real meaning. You, know, you can generally, with milk, if it doesn't smell good, don't drink it. Um, but if you haven't opened it and you open it up past the date, chances are it's going to be fine. So, uh, I mean, should there be one uniform definition? I think the USDA organic rules actually are probably a good uh, cautionary tale that maybe we shouldn't have some sort of national definition of use-by um, but, I mean, I think it's an interesting conversation to have, and certainly consumers' misunderstanding of those terms, sell by, use by, best by, uh, and that's B-Y as opposed to B-U-Y, um, I think contributes enormously to food waste. So is part of the um, problem with 
I don't want to say inaccurate use by dates, but uh, is part of the problem for producers of foods the idea that some liability they could be opened up to liability if they're putting dates that are uh, reasonable but uh, not uh, exceedingly uh, cautious. I think so. I mean, there's certainly there's some foods that uh, let's take uh, raw poultry. Um, you know, those dates probably are, are a good thing, and uh, they indicate something to us. Uh, you know, packed on would probably indicate those same things to us. But also, it depends: is this a frozen piece of you know chicken, or is it something that's uh, that's been sitting in uh, in refrigeration? There are lots of questions around that issue. Um, I mean, I think that uh, certainly there, uh, these things are contributing to food waste, and uh, food makers do want to avoid liability, and I can't fault them for that. Um, but there are, I think, ways to get around. Uh, you know, if some producer is acting in good faith, for example, that's a, a rule that exists for food donations. If you're not negligent, you're acting in good faith. You're not intentionally trying to poison anyone that rule could be applied to uh, food manufacturers, and that would probably have the same effect of reducing food waste. And, you know, frankly, we overproduce food, and it might, uh, it might uh, help us reduce our uh, food production amounts, too. Speaking of uh, donating food, you talk about how the intermediary role that governments play in people who want to be generous and want to provide food for those who need it. Uh, so what what do they do? This is, of all the rules that I discuss in my book, the most despicable one in which I think there's absolutely no defensible position uh, that people should not be allowed to share food with the homeless and, and others in need. And uh, there are laws around the country. Uh, they've been challenged in Las Vegas and in Philadelphia, but they're on the books in plenty of other big cities. Uh, there's Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Orlando, where people actually have been uh, uh, jailed for sharing food with the homeless and less fortunate. Um, and then there's New York City where Mayor Bloomberg, then Mayor Bloomberg, uh, famously said that uh, people could not donate food to city shelters because, and this is almost predictable what I'm about to say, the city could not assess the salt or fat or other nutrition content of the food. Sort of uh, a let them eat cake attitude. Exactly, but only if we know the ingredients of the cake first. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, these are uh, just uniformly awful rules. And, yeah, they, they do cause food waste, uh, which is another sort of attendant circumstance. But, you know, for, for people to be prohibited from exercising their charitable inclination in such a way, particularly when there are people in need, uh, is just atrocious. And, and these are generally led by cities, you say? Yes. Yeah. There, there are no state or federal laws that I'm aware of that... Uh, to either do anything to prohibit or even to discourage food donations. So it, you say it's despicable and there's no defensible position, but there has to be some sort of public rationale that would lead many large cities to have those kinds of laws on the books. Well, I mean, there's Bloomberg's rationale. I think the uh, the rationale in Orlando, for example, where people from the group Food Not Bombs have been arrested uh, for sharing food uh, with the homeless is, you know, we don't want these people in our city parks. Um, I interviewed a guy uh, in Houston who's been feeding uh, the homeless for years. Uh, his name, in all seriousness, is Jay Hamburger, which is a great name, particularly for someone in, the, in his line of work. Um, I'm jealous. I know. Um, and he said uh, that basically the city uh, of Houston, where he is, 
has been trying to gentrify the area around, uh, I guess, where they're either they have built or want to build a, a soccer stadium. Um, and so Hamburger says, you know, it's really just a way to sort of uh, push people aside and push them to the, you know, more even more to the fringes of society and, and because they're, you know, an eyesore. At the federal level, USDA and FDA are in charge of food safety. Can you desc- that's that's an enormous task. Uh, can you describe uh, how well they perform and sort of what their what the mindset is that leads them to take this action versus that action? I mean, I think uh, our food system is uh, one of the safest in history, if not the safest in history today. And I think it's a combination of, you know, we can thank the FDA and the USDA for their hard work. Um, we can also thank uh, consumers for expecting safe food. And we can, ex- uh, you know, thank uh, restaurants and food manufacturers and others, farmers, uh, for producing and selling safe food. I think that uh, the general, uh, you know, going back 110 years when the FDA, and the, well, which didn't exist at the time, but the precursor to the FDA, along with the USDA, which did exist then, uh, their mission was to ensure that food was not adulterated, you know, meaning that it didn't have pathogens in it or was not misbranded, meaning that it had an honest label uh, describing what was inside. And those two missions continue today, and I think they're tremendously important, and I think they point to you know, the proper role of government. But that's the jumping off point for so many terrible things that then happen uh, as a result. Afterwards, I discuss the case of uh, Mark Denitis in the introduction of the book. Uh, he ran a uh, sustainable salumeria, which is a place that sells hard muscle meats like pepperoni and other things. Um, and he was inspected by the USDA, and he passed all his tests, and no one uh, ever found any pathogens in, in his food or even accused him of having any. Um, the USDA, though, one day told him that he had to add nitrates or nitrites to his food. Lots of Meats uh, contain nitrates or nitrites. They are present naturally in some leafy green vegetables and celery root. Uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with them, but Martinidis had founded a company, Il Mondo Vecchio, which translates uh, to the old world in Italian, and he wanted to use old world methods while still making safe and tasty food. He won lots of awards, um, but the USDA said, hey, listen, you either need to add these things or uh, – go out of business, basically. You can't sell the food that you've been selling. And so Dinitis, who's a, a, an extremely principled guy, uh, decided he wasn't going to lie to his customers about his old world methods and simply went out of business. And this is a guy who had taught food safety courses um, at one of the leading culinary schools uh, in the country for 10 years and you know had a long history of, he was on the American Lamb Board. I mean, he knows his stuff. This wasn't some fly-by-night uh, operation out of his mom's you know, basement or something. Um, so if this guy can't succeed in the, in the face of, uh, you know, overarching, uh, overreaching food safety regulations, then, then many of uh, his smaller competitors and those regulated by the FDA certainly can't either. In the competition between the seen and the unseen, it seems that there are a lot of ways that uh, regulation on production methods for food can really substantially narrow the range of stuff that is available to people. I mean, Americans love to consume the products of the world and try new things and things like that, but there are, you can't expect a lot of other countries to uh, produce foods in ways that would meet with the approval of the 
FDA or USDA. Right. I mean, we're certainly poorer for our choices because of that. You know, we'll watch uh, Anthony Bourdain go abroad to some country and he'll be eating this street food, uh, which would never be legal in this country. Um, you know, they're carving open some animal right there in the street and and it looks, you know, incredibly tasty. And if Bourdain's reaction is, is any marker, then it is incredibly tasty. But, you know, it's just the case that as Americans, we have to leave America in order to taste that sort of food. There's um, your, uh, your question leads me into uh, a reminder uh, that I discuss in the book, a case. Uh, so there's the farmer's markets in Mississippi. There are farmer's markets in every state. Um, but the rules in Mississippi say that if you're going to sell meats or any other animal products at a farmer's market, you need to have a refrigerated truck. And you either need to lease it and put your information, you know, slap it on the side or own it. Regardless of how big you are, you might own one cow and you might want to sell a few steaks a week. And the farmer's market might only be open for four hours a week. Not only do you have to own that truck, but you have to transport the meat to the farmer's market in that truck. You have to have the truck running and the refrigeration in the back of the truck running throughout the entire farmer's market. And you have to go into the back of the truck, pull out that steak from the refrigerated truck, and then you know, sell it to a customer. And you know, it's, it's not terribly difficult to see how this is a barrier to very small farmers, particularly when you know, alternatives in many other states exist, such as use an ice chest, um, use a cooler, or if it's 12 degrees out, you know, put your steak in plastic and sell it on a, a table. Um, it's, uh, it's rules like these that sort of take the farmers out of the farmer's market and you know, point to the fact that these overly strict food safety regulations don't just exist at the federal level. Balin Linekin is author of Biting the Hands That Feed Us, How Fewer, Smarter Laws Would Make Our Food System More Sustainable. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.